0: We want to read our Scripture lessons today. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9 is our Old Testament text. This is probably the most quoted Scripture passage uh, in the world every day. Uh, this is part of what the, all the Jewish folks say is, is included in here. Other folks say it as well. It's called the Shema. So, uh, it, but it, Jesus refers to it when the the, uh, person, the lawyer asked Him, what's the, the greatest commandment? He pointed to this. And so, we want to look at it today or listen to it today. Listen here to God's Word. Hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. Amen. Our epistle reading is from Second Peter chapter 1 verse 19 through chapter 2 verse 3. These are verses that uh, Peter is writing. He warns the folk about false teachers. they says, they've, false prophets have always been around. Watch out for false teachers. So, it's a good thing to, for us to hear. Listen here to God's Word. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts but know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the holy spirit spoke from god but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you you will who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Amen. And then our main passage today is Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21. We finally reach the end of the book of Revelation. We began preaching through it, reading about it back on September the 22nd. And so, we've been in this a long, long time. And today we finish it. So, uh, really it's just a big wrap-up thing that, that uh, John uh, records here. So, listen here again to God's Word. And He, that is the angel, said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show me to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren. The prophets." And of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may enter, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away His part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written of in this book. He who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen and amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word which we've read. Lord God, we come again this morning before you. We always look to you for your help, for your ministry, for your graciousness to us in the preaching and hearing of the Word of God. So we ask you, Lord, to do that again today. Open our hearts and minds uh, by your Word, slice through all the things that are going on into the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So come, do your gracious and holy work. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and the Lord of all. Amen. Amen. Well, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? It's simply this to show that Jesus reigns. All through the book, no matter how you go through it, you'll see that Jesus reigns uh, as king of all. He has indeed established his throne in the heavens, he's the victor over all. Any person, any group, any nation that stands against him or who rejects him is not in a good place. <clears throat> Revelation is about is a prophecy about the coming judgment of God, the coming judgment of God on the Jewish nation specifically. What I've we've looked this past uh, few months, we said that this prophecy, uh, the whole book was almost all, but not entirely, was fulfilled by the Roman conquest in A.D. seventy of the Jews and of Jerusalem. Now, the most significant factor for understanding Revelation is what? They should have it up here on the screen. Uh, That's what we want to find out. What's the most significant factor? Well, uh, it's the date. When was it written? That's why it's important. Now, my take on this, what I've told you, what I've said is that my take is that this was written sometime in 65 or 66 in that general time frame, AD 65 or 66. Now, if it's a prophecy and it's written then, when is it written for? So, that's the the next question. So, they'll pop that baby up there too. Uh, The things that are depicted in Revelation, are they meant to happen sooner or later? That seems like a, a fairly obvious question. Revelation 22, where we just read, has five time indicators in it. And you're going to pop those babies up there. Right? Yes, they are. Verse 6, things, go ahead, keep, do, do them all, just all at one time. Zim, zim, zim. That would be good. Verse 6, things which must soon take place. Verse 7, I am coming quickly. Verse 10, for the time is near. Verse 12, I am coming quickly. And verse 20, I am coming quickly. So, five Different verses, all with a time indicator in part of that. Uh, what is our reaction as we read that? As you read those verses, do you think, well, it's time is near, I'm coming quickly? What does that mean? Uh, how, how are we to understand that? So let's look at the words. In chapter 22, verse 6, the word that's there is uh, tachas. And as you can see there it's a Greek word. It's used seven times in the New Testament. It's always used in a time or chronological sense. It means soon. Soon we're going to eat lunch and we're going to have some cake. See you in 2,000 years. Well, no, you don't think that do you? If I say we're soon going to have lunch and have some cake, you don't think, well, man I'm not waiting for 2,000 years or 3,000 years or even 200 years. You think it's going to be soon, right? We are soon going to have lunch and have some cake, by the way. So we can, we can the Lord willing, for those who want to, anyway. So we'll do it that way. Uh, it means uh, speedily in terms of time. Now, chapter 22, verses 7, 12, and 20 have the word hahu, which is just an uh, adverbial form. And it means uh, speedily, without delay. Uh, it's used 13 times in the New Testament. A good number of them right here in Revelation, as you see, I think five or six of times in Revelation it's used, and so other examples where it's used uh, in in uh, Easter morning, when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, meets Mary, says, "Go quickly," or the angel says, "Go quickly and tell his disciples." Well, she took off, right? She did it quickly. Likewise, when the in the parable of the prodigal son, the father sees the prodigal. Son coming. And He says, quickly, grab a robe, the best robe. Same word. So, this, this always means speedily, soon. Do it without delay is what you want to understand there. And then in 22.10 we have the word engus. That's the way to say it perhaps. It's also found in verse 3 of chapter 1. It occurs 31 times. And it always has a, a, a the sense of, of proximity, of nearness in terms of time or place. So, I give examples there I think of you're near Jerusalem or the, the Passover was near. That's a, a timed event. So, that's what those words mean. Uh, consider verse 10 in the injunction not to seal up. Here's what God told Daniel in uh, Daniel 12. But as for you Daniel, conceal the words and seal up the book and then just a few verses later He says again, this next quotation we're going to put up here, As for me I, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end. That is, the, this is stuff that's going to happen far off down the future. Seal it up now. Don't, don't open it up now. Don't, don't do that at all. And then earlier this in this process we had read in chapter 10 verse 4 about the seven peals of thunder. They came with uh, at the very final judgments when I was going to point to them. And he heard them. And then he's told to seal up uh, the things the set which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. So, you have all this sealing up going on. For these are things that are farther away. Don't worry about that. But here today in Revelation 22, 10 what are we told? Here's what we're told. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. That's why, among the reasons why I think this book was written around 65 or 66 AD. Now, the majority of scholars, both sound scholars and not so sound scholars, the vast majority of scholars don't agree with me. So, if you don't agree with me, hallelujah you're on a good side. Nothing wrong with that at all. I'm telling you what I'm I'm thinking about how how I want us to, 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 I would encourage you to think about this. uh, Because uh, if not things get sort of out of whack. Now let me show you some, or speak to you about some implications that flow from this. If the liberals give a late date to Revelation, how do they understand Revelation? They understand Revelation as a... uh, History as prophecy. That is, whoever wrote it, they're not sure John wrote it or not. He wrote it looking back, say, Well, here's what happened at the destruction of Jerusalem, and here's how I'm going to describe that. So they understood and understand that, that all the things described in, in Revelation fit this scenario for AD 70, or 66 270, but they use it as history. It's not, so, it's not a prophecy, and yet we've seen throughout this book that it says, This is a prophecy, this is a prophecy, this is a prophecy, okay? They say, no, it's not a prophecy. It's history. Uh, And for them then the entire eschatological theme of the Bible is overthrown. It's no good. Now, we're going to have a good bad example for us today. His name is Albert Schweitzer. You ever heard of Albert Schweitzer? He's a good bad example, indeed the example par excellence of liberal theology. He wrote a seminal book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus back in the early 1900's. Uh, It's influenced people all down to today. It's still doing that sort of thing. Here's what Albert Schweitzer said. Uh, He said, Jesus in the knowledge that He is the coming Son of Man lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. He sees all things being wrapped up in Him. So, that's what Jesus does. He sees this. This is what he's doing. All right. Uh, But then what happens? He he goes on, it refuses to turn. And he, Jesus, throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. He goes on and says this, the wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign. Uh, that's how he sees the crucifixion of Christ. I used this in a, in a Good Friday sermon years and years and years ago over at Indian Creek Church when we, the Southern Telford Ministerium had it there. I can you remember that? And uh, said, you know, he got it exactly wrong. He got it exactly wrong. He, he, he has. They, they think that Jesus had this idea that he's going to, you know, change the world, turn the world around, and he was wrong because it crushed him. It did not. He crushed it. You know, and, and they miss that entirely. Now, now the thing is, so that's that, that's his conception, that's his understanding. But what he goes on and writes later in the, the same book, same chapter. As a matter of fact, he writes this. First of all, he says. Jesus means something to our world because a mighty spiritual force streams from him and flows through our time also. So that's why he's still interested in Jesus. He says there's a mighty spiritual force that flows through him and flows to us. And then he goes on and explains what that means. He says it is not Jesus as historically known, but Jesus as spiritually arisen within men. Who is significant for our time and can help it. Not the historical Jesus, but the Spirit which goes forth from Him and in the spirits of men strives for new influence and rule is that which overcomes the world. Now do you hear what he says there? This is a false teacher. This is a very false teacher. He says it's not the historical Jesus. I, I've had conversations with people for years and years and years who they like Jesus. He's a great teacher. He does all these things. But uh The actual events of His life? Eh, not so much. Uh, And especially the crucifixion and the resurrection. I mean, I'm supposed to believe that. Well, yes. These things are fact. They're historical. But He says no. And so what He introduces is some spiritual force. And what He's unleashing is all the powers of hell of deception. I'm going to have some force within me that's not connected to the historical Jesus. Right? It's not there. It's going to flow from me. I'm going to call it Jesus. So it all sounds right. I'm going to call it Jesus, but it's not. It will lead to all sorts of places you don't want to go. And liberal Christianity shows that, displays what, where all that leads, all the things which are going on there. Now, uh, this is what 2 Peter in that passage is warning us about. Watch out, there will be false teachers here Among us. They got ahead of me here. That's all right. Leave it up because we're going to go right there. Now, the conservatives, they don't go that way. But they still have some problems because uh, here's what, this is George Ellen Ladd. He'd be a, I don't know if I even have this in my notes here. I do. Hallelujah. That's good. Otherwise I have to read it off there. Uh, He is a uh, good, sound, evangelical Christian scholar. He's I think he's, he's dead now. But he says, these events are soon to take place. These words have troubled commentators. Folks, they've not only troubled commentators, they've troubled just plain old readers like you and me, right? What does this mean? Soon, soon, soon. Uh, the simplest solution is, like the entire early church community, and think the coming of the Lord was near. When He said these things back in AD 33. When in fact they were wrong. He goes on and says, our Lord Himself seems to share this error. Now there's a little <laughs> blip off of the main track. Error in perspective in the saying, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. And so for the conservative evangelical person, uh, scholar and otherwise just sitting here, there's a great mystery. We're not quite sure eschatologically what's going to happen when. Uh, they're faithful to the Scriptures, they're faithful to God, they want to believe all that, but they're not quite sure when. So, what is the consequence of that? It's given rise to charts, to timelines, to speculations, all down through Christian history. Well, not all down through there, but a good part of it, thinking this is the day. You know, we can see all the, the things of Revelation, the things of Isaiah, whatever, and they're, they're happening now. And they identify the Antichrist, the beast, and all those things. It's been for hundreds of years, i got a books back here in my library that that document that. So, it's given rise to all sorts of speculations. Now, putting that all aside, what do we see in Revelation and its prophecies? Here, the very thing I said at the very beginning, we see God's judgment in history. Now, William Hendrickson gets it right. Here's the paradigm he sets up says, all warnings point to the final judgment, but throughout history, the history of the world, God's final wrath again and again reveals itself. Now it strikes this one and then another. That is, just like the wrath wrath of God struck the Jews, it struck other nations, it struck the Romans, it struck all kinds of different nations. And all those prefigure the final wrath, but that's God acting there because nations and peoples have turned their back, have rejected, have said no to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, even though those are all paradigms, that does not take away from the fact that there is a final coming, a final coming of the Lord. He says this, it is final though not complete until the judgment day. Did we get that one up there? If we did, fine. If not, you have to take my word for it. Uh, So, we see that Jesus is victor over all. In verse 6, it says, these words are faithful and true. We need to know these words are faithful and true. The, the words that Jesus speaks, the whole element of the Scripture, that's all true. They're faithful and are true. We need to stand by them. So, for instance, in verse 13 He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. you got to start with Jesus, you got to end with Jesus, and stay with Him all the way through. He says, I'm the One. That's what He says. Uh, we preached on Thursday here uh, from John Uh, 13 and 14, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There are no other ways of salvation. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, He goes on in verse 16, he says, "Uh, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. That's for us. We need to hear these things. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Uh, He says, all the Old Testament. Is fulfilled in me. I'm the root of David, out of which all those things flow, and I'm the descendant, I'm the one in whom they're fulfilled. I'm the bright morning star that shows there's this new age that's coming, it's breaking. And that's what Second Peter shows as well. And verse 14 he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. So they do the tree of life and river of life as well. It's Jesus who cleanses people from their sin, nothing else. He's the one who does that. Now, how people respond to that message makes all the difference in time and eternity. How do you respond to the message that Jesus is your only way to heaven? That Jesus is the only way your sins get forgiven? It's exclusive. Nothing you do, nothing you say can take away the fact that Jesus has to be your Savior. People get offended by that. People find that difficult. But that's what we found in Revelation that's what is taught all the way through. Now the judgment in A.D. 70 that fell upon Jerusalem tells us that Jesus is the victor. Uh, this is the final shift. You know for 40 years Jesus has been being proclaimed by the apostles and to the Jewish folks. All, it's been proclaimed all along through there. And people had a chance to think about it. And all along there, there are scores of Jews who are being saved. Gentiles too in due time, a lot of those. But the Jews are being saved. But as a whole, that nation rejected Jesus. They said, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. He may have been a wise man. He may have been a good man. But he was not Messiah. He wasn't Savior. He was misguided and he misspoke. And so you still go over... (laughs) And hear the, the story to Israel, or you talk to a Jew. I tell the story, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell it again now. Uh, David Zadok, whom we support in our 100 series with the uh, uh, mission to Israel, he was raised a Jew. He is a Jew. I mean, He got converted in high school out in California. And he had to go back, he was from the Middle East, he had to go back to Iran or Iraq. Uh, tell his uncle, who was his supporter, that what had happened. And he took him out to dinner and Says, I have something important to tell you. And he told him that he had received Christ as his Savior, that he believed Jesus was Messiah. And his uncle said, oh, that's terrible. You've gone over to the other side. I was hoping you were simply saying that you had committed murder or you were hooked on drugs, anything, but that you had become a Christian. Because you have overthrown all of what we Jews believe. We don't believe Jesus is is the Savior. He's not the Messiah. He's not the one who's coming. And so, for 40 years it was preached among the Jews in Israel and all around. That's where Paul always went first, synagogue, preached that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. And Many thousands and tens of thousands believed, but as a whole the nation rejected Christ. And Revelation is really the setting forth of here's God's judgment in history. And what happens to that nation, that nation happens to every nation that rejects Christ. That should make us quiver for our land. We have been in the process, has it been 40 years or not? I don't know. it Has been 40 years that we've, we've turned our back on Christ? We've said no to him and we've, we've gone deliberately. Now, we still say his name. People, I mean, do who don't believe. But, but we're even getting to the place where we can't say that. In one of the devotionals I did this week, I mentioned I saw uh, among the protests the, a sign where someone had a sign that said, uh, If Jesus returns, kill him again. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's where we. Now that's not typical where most people are, but that's where the, the fringe is. And that fringe is coming back to the, is pulling the center toward it I should say. We should worry, we should be concerned, we should be interceding for our land. Because we are in fact rejecting Jesus in many of the things that are taking place uh, over the past 20 years and right now as far as that goes too. At the end of that 40 years though what Jesus said, Proved to be exactly true, not one stone was left upon another. That's what Revelation shows. The word was true, not one stone left upon another. And I think Philip Schaff got it about right. Uh, Schaff was a German reform guy, so he's one of ours, and uh, he wrote a big eight-volume history of the Christian Church. Now he died long, long ago. He he was flourishing in the late 1800s. But here's what he wrote in, in chapter 1. He says, "...the awful catastrophe of the destruction of the Jewish theocracy must have produced the profoundest sensation among the Christians of which we can hardly form a true conception." So, th- for the Christians they saw this as confirmation. Yes. The temple, you, you can't go and offer a sacrifice there and get forgiveness for your sins you need to come to Christ. Now, God has mercifully let people do that for 40 years, but they said, "No more." He goes on to say, "It was the greatest calamity of Judaism and a great benefit to Christianity, a refutation of the one, a vindication and emancipation of the other." Set free from the notion that we have to be Jews. Well, the fact of the matter is we are Jews, true Israel, according to the whole Old Testament, where the where the, the you know, Romans 11, the branch has been broken off, and a wild branch by nature doesn't deserve it is put in and plugged into all that, but rightly understood, he goes on and says this. Schaff does it not only gave a mighty impulse to faith, but at the same time formed a proper epoch. In the history of the relation between the two religious bodies, it separated them forever." Now, I would say that we know that's not exactly true either. According to Romans 11, there will come a time when the Jews will be converted as well. And they continue to be converted one by one, little by little, all down through history. But there will come a time when the Jews will come back likewise. That's close to the very end. Um, So, when we look at Revelation, what do we take away, and how do we wrap it up? I have four points. In about four minutes to make them. Number one, worship God. That's what he tells him here, right here. Worship God. Deuteronomy six four through nine says, worship God with your whole heart, soul, mind, all the things that you have. Worship God. Now, we need to do, recognize that, that worship has an object. The object is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Worship is not simply me doing things that make me feel good. You know, a lot of people think that's what it is that you worship, you, you feel good. Well, you should feel good, but worship is directed to God. It's always focused, it has, that's the object. We're, we're worshiping God. We need to do that personally. We need to do that as a family, and we need to do that corporately. Isn't it good to be in corporate worship again? Yes. <laughs> I've had, I've had uh, uh, two grown men say they came here the first time for worship after we had these months off, and they wept while we sang. Just tears flowed down. It's good to work, and we're w- worshiping God. Corporately. We need to do that. And so that's our exhortation. One first exhortation is there is worship God. Now, when you worship God, don't worship nature. Don't worship other men. Don't worship some process. Worship God. All I could go on and list all kinds of different things that we're prone to do to, to get off target. But worship God, focus on Him. Now, Number two, this won't take long. Don't mess with the word. It says don't add to it, don't subtract from it. If you do, all these things are going to fall on you. All of the Bible, don't subtract from it. All of the Bible, apply it to all of your life. Be all right, get you through. Number three, says here, and we agree with this, is that we all cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. Despite what we have here, we cry, Come, Lord Jesus. Now, there was a time when I said, Jesus, hold off a little while. It's pretty good here. you ever been like that? Sure you have. Maybe you still are, I don't know. It's okay, Jesus, don't come just yet. But our spirit within us, the Holy Spirit says, Come, Lord Jesus. We long for the day when Christ's full victory is seen and established here on earth as in heaven. That's what we pray, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes we cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, because of what's going on here, right? Yeah. <laughs> We don't say, don't come because because of what's happening. Oh, come Lord Jesus. But we should have that, that inner desire to see and know and be with Christ and have His will done everywhere. So, the basic hermeneutic way in which we understand the Bible is this. What? It's victory in Jesus, hooray, hallelujah, right? Amen. Victory in Jesus. Now, for our final summation, how do we given that's the fact? How do we approach Revelation and other apocalyptic texts? Well, I could not end this series on Revelation without showing you two unusual pictures. Let's have the first one. Let's see if, if they can recognize. Oh. Are you tired of that? Are you ready to barf because you've seen this so often? You probably are. But this reminds us that revelation is not that. It's not a photograph. If you look at it like a photograph, where you're looking to identify all you no, know, there's that window, there's that window. You're, you're gonna miss it. Instead, it's you ready for this other thing that will make you barf? What is it? Show us, show us what it is. There it is. Someone described that. Well, you have to describe what it all it, it, it imports. And the book of Revelation in apocalyptic literature represents and sends forth uh, a message that way. A message nonetheless. That's the Louisiana monument at Gettysburg, by the way, in case you weren't here before. I don't think Curt and Betty Jo have seen this before. So, uh, for their illumination I'll mention what it is. But that's more like what this literature is with this, these writings. So, we need to understand that. Now, you take that down. Uh, Here's our final summation. Here's how we wrap up all of Revelation, wrap up all the Bible, where I wrap up my ministry. Here it's this, two quotations from Jesus. Here's the first one. See if you recognize this. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority. Now He said this 2,000 years ago, all authority has been given to me in Heaven and on Earth. He has it all. He's established His throne in the Heavens. He rules over all. Do you know that? We know, yes. Because of that, go therefore and make disciples of a few people here and there. No, make disciples of all the nations. We need to have an expansive vision. I'm thankful for our missionary budget we have here. You know, we, we support lots, and none of them are huge things, but they're all helping Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, there's distinctives about Christianity that separates it from every other religion on the face of the earth. And the triune God is one of those distinctives. Baptize them that in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? What? Don't just preach conversion, but teach them, the nations, to observe, that is, to do, all that I commanded you. And lo. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that a great verse? That's our task. That's what we do. There's another verse I want to add to that. Pop that verse on up there. This is in Matthew 11. Jesus says, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart." You will find rest for your souls. You know, those two passages, I think, are cornerstone material. Don't you think so? Yeah, that would be great to put that on a cornerstone of a church, wouldn't it? Oh, wait, we, they are on our cornerstone. How about that? <laughs> so that wraps it all up. We have a task to do. We're by people, come, Jesus, come, come on. No matter where you've been, what you've done, no matter where where what's going on with you, come. You'll find rest for your souls. Amen.